Climate change threatens every one of us. But what would you sacrifice if giving something up could solve the climate crisis? We've done a big survey in every European Union country, in China, in the US, and in Britain, to find out what people are ready to do to fight climate change, to understand what solutions they think will work, and whether they're even worried at all about climate change now that COVID-19 threatens us. Then we spoke to experts about what it all means for the future of our planet. I'm Matt, and this is Climate Solutions. Today, I get around, travel into the future. In the 1960s, the Beach Boys released a string of no fewer than eight songs about cars and motorbikes. Little Deuce Coop, Fun Fun Fun, Till Her Daddy Takes the T-Bird Away. The quaintly named Little Honda, which they sang was as much fun as a barrel of monkeys. And of course, I Get Around, in which they recounted their adventures, picking up lots of women and scaring the bad guys by being tough. For Californian pop singers back then, combustion engines meant freedom and speed, and they were cool. How times change. If there were a contemporary equivalent of the Beach Boys, they'd be singing about their monthly bus tickets and offering to take their girlfriends for a ride on an electric bike. Now that really does sound like as much fun as a barrel of monkeys. But the changes in the way we get around are not finished. Total global emissions come from a few main areas of human activity, energy, industry, agriculture, and transport. Aviation alone is responsible for around 1 billion tons of greenhouse gas emissions each year. That might not sound like much, particularly when you compare it to the total of 40 billion tons of carbon emitted globally, but it has been growing since the 1990s, whereas a lot of other polluting industries have been cutting emissions. The European Investment Bank's climate survey asked 30,000 people in the European Union, China, the US and the UK about changes they were making or would be prepared to make in the way they move from place to place and what they think is needed to make mobility clean and green instead of being one of the biggest causes of greenhouse gas emissions. Adelaide Zulfi-Karpasik is director of opinion polls at PVA, the Paris company that carried out the survey for the European Investment Bank. The survey found that 67% of Europeans say they're less likely to use public transport now because of health concerns. That is, they're worried they might contract COVID on the bus. In the US and China, that number was even higher, 71% for Americans and 75% for Chinese. I asked Adelaide about the impact of COVID-19 on people's attitudes to travel and how that might play out in the future. People became uh, unaccustomed to flying um, because they are less flying, um, as you know. And these people um, say um, uh, for part of them that they might not return to their previous habits. Um, when COVID-19 related restrictions are lifted, uh, only a minority of Europeans, of Chinese citizens, and also of Americans say that they will return to their previous travel habits and that will they will travel by plane as they did before the pandemic. So I think that on the contrary, this would be rather good news for uh, the environment. Our survey found that 82% of Europeans were willing to take their holidays close to home rather than traveling a great distance and causing a lot of emissions. In China, that was even a little higher, while 69% of Americans agreed. 74% of Europeans intend to fly less compared to 70% of Americans and 80% of Chinese. Trains 
are a big winner. For trips that take five hours or less, 71% of Europeans would prefer to take the train. In China, that was 83%. Even in America, it was 53%. While slightly more than half of the people surveyed said they would agree to pay a carbon offset for their flights, only around 20% said they were actually doing that. The survey shows people aren't so interested in paying a fee to offset the carbon emissions from flying. They'd rather just not fly. Everywhere in the world, respondents say that it would be um, easier to stop flying than anything else. Far ahead for, um, uh, of giving up video streaming or giving up uh, buying, buying new clues or giving up meat. Uh, you're right, carbon offsets uh, ranks last in the list, but um, maybe for two reasons. Uh, because this action is not concrete enough uh, compared with other actions such as uh, giving up the trip of your dream or, or taking the train. Or, so it's not concrete. And a second reason, um, um, on the, I think it's on the contrary good news because I have the feeling that um, carbon offsets could appear as a bit too easy, um, asking a very few efforts. Um, you have to pay, but you have no renouncements, no sacrifice. So uh, on the contrary, I think that's rather as a good news. In our last episode, we looked at the role price will play in stopping climate change. In other words, if something is bad for the climate, it should gradually become more expensive. Or if it's good for the climate, it should become gradually cheaper. So the consumers will naturally make the right choice. That's true in mobility too. Edward Coulthrop is head of the Climate Policy Unit at the European Investment Bank. The EIB, as it's known, makes loans on behalf of the European Union. It lends to all kinds of transport companies and authorities, from research into electric cars to big new rolling stock for the railways. How does the European Union's Climate Bank see the future of transport? So the, the issue of our support to to the transport sector um, generally, and I mean, airports and, and airplanes in particular came up and, and featured fairly strongly in our, in our public consultation around the Climate Bank roadmap. And of course, this was, you know, the challenge was indeed to, to strike the right balance in, in focusing EIB support most, most productively um, within these sectors. Rail is largely electrified. So we don't see any, I mean, there's no particular climate climate issue there. Moreover, as you're saying, we're expecting strong growth in the next few years. Uh, the commission in particular in their new, their, their recently re, um, released uh, smart and sustainable strategy uh, are looking at you know, high-speed rail traffic doubling by 2030, boosting cross-European connections. At the same time, we have essentially this that the regulatory environment this fourth railway package um, bedding down so opening up a little bit the the, the rail market so eib eib has been a traditional supporter of the of the trans-european rail network both passenger and 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 freight and we will continue to to do to do so um, i should add that we're actually in the course of this year we'll come forward with a with a revised transport lending policy, which is precisely looking at how we can really make best use of EIB resources to support that, that commission strategy. And if people don't want to pay to offset carbon emissions, aeroplanes obviously need to get cleaner and greener. 
What does the future hold there? Aviation is, of course, more more tricky or more sensitive, given that the um, the sector is is associated with uh, increasing emissions, with large amounts of emissions. Um, and although the technology pathway is, as such, kind of clear, um, you know, it's going to take some years, some decades before. Um, there's a, there's a credible chance of getting on a long haul flight and and not that not resulting in emissions of CO2. You know the question for us is really we have fixed resources. Um, how can we best target that really to to help the long term objectives of of policy? You know, we need more R and D into low carbon technologies, not just the big manufacturers, but the whole the whole chain. So EIB will continue to will we'll focus on that, um, but really on on the low carbon side, and step away from from the conventional technologies. That's the first point. Um, the second point was really around the you know the airport side, which I mean, clearly in some sense airports are not directly emitting; um, they're basically using electricity. So there's there's not much direct emissions there. That the emissions are from 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 the planes. But obviously, it's part of an integrated system. We've come to the view that we will uh, continue to support um, investment in airports, but we will focus that really around around greening airports, around making them safer, around around improving security. We'll step back from from projects really designed to expand capacity at airports. One of the most interesting possible paths for aviation to take is powering future aeroplanes with hydrogen which, incidentally, can come in different colors based on how clean they are. Hydrogen can, I mean, can be manufactured from, um, it's essentially two ways of manufacturing. Uh, the very old technology is just electrolysis, so basically running electricity through water, water H2O, and, and, and um, that can, running the um, electricity through the water, through the electrolysis process, divides it into, into hydrogen with a waste product of oxygen. So that, if you do that with green electricity, essentially you've produced hydrogen with, with no emissions of carbon. The alternative the existing is uh, usually through a process called steam methane, methane reforming. That is basically um, you know, generating the hydrogen out of hydrocarbons. And so the, the, the waste product there, put very simply, is, is, is carbon dioxide. So unless you can capture that, and store it, you you end up with a with a carbon emission. So there's quite a rich terminology out there at the moment, but essentially, um, when people are referring to low carbon hydrogen, they're usually referring to either um, the electrolysis from from renewable power, or potentially they're referring to steam methane reforming, but then with uh, a technology slotted in to capture that carbon. So this is known as blue hydrogen. So we have green hydrogen and blue hydrogen, both of which are being looked at very seriously uh, in different parts of, of Europe. And that's in contrast to, let's call it grey hydrogen, which is existing where the, where the CO2 is, is just vented into the atmosphere. You'll remember that when our survey asked people what would be the hardest thing to give up to stop climate change, we offered them the choice of giving up new clothes, red meat, streaming video, taking exotic trips. But the hardest thing to give up, by quite a long way, they said, for most people in Europe and the United States, was 
the car. So what's going to happen to cars? Will they all become electric? Will they disappear and will all take public transport? Will they become smaller to consume less energy? I asked Ed Coulthrop. You have the sense that electric cars are on the cusp of, of breaking through. Depends a bit on you know your 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 needs, your use, um, whether you're travelling you know, regularly, long distances, short distances, etc. But I mean, there's there's plenty of studies out there showing essentially that the taken on a sort of lifetime basis, the um, we're getting close to the point where for some parts of the market, electric vehicles are are cost competitive with. With conventionals, I meaning you may have to pay a bit higher up front, but the running costs, the operating costs will be will be lower. So we're close to it now. Why are we close to it now? Well, we've seen, um, I mean, just an, an astonishing reduction in the cost of lithium-ion batteries over the last decade. You know, that's essentially, they've essentially come down by an order of magnitude. And and so no, look, I think the prospects on electric vehicles are very are very strong. Most days I get to work on my bike. I have to take a fairly indirect route, though, because I want to avoid busy roads because they're dangerous. And there are no real bike lanes like the ones you see for cyclists in the Netherlands. That's a common problem all over Europe and the world, actually. And it's shared by Ed, whose family home is in Belgium. It's a network phenomena. So what's important is the weakest link in the network. And so investment in that is 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 important. So I mean, I give you a very simple example which is actually I, you know, with the kids, we're about 10 kilometers out from, from one of the local cities. And you know, essentially I have, essentially there's two stretches. One stretch is it's around five kilometers is, is through country lanes and is, is very pleasant. And the second half is another five kilometers, eventually, essentially following a, an old disused railway line. Um, so it all sounds good, good stuff, but the problem is to get from the first five kilometers to the second five kilometers, we have to cross uh, an incredibly busy and dangerous uh, road. And as a result, um, you know, our, our, our family use of cycling down to the local town is, is, uh, is, is definitely suboptimal. So infrastructure is hugely important. I think it, it's really around, as I say, it's around developing coherent networks, um, that really f- focus on perhaps as much as anything, eliminating the, the, the weak points on, on those networks. COVID-19 has a part to play here. If people worry about catching COVID-19 when they catch the bus, the bike becomes a good alternative. 73% of Europeans say they cycle and walk more now because it's safer than public transport as they see it. In the US, that's 69% and in China, 89%. But there are big differences between countries when it comes to commuting by bike. In the US and the UK, only 11% of people said nothing was holding them back from commuting by bike. In the EU, that was at 15% overall, but with a big range. In the famously bike-friendly Netherlands, 35% of people said nothing was holding them back from commuting by bike. At the other end of the scale, at 2 3 and 4%, were Cyprus, Malta, and Luxembourg. Distance is, no doubt, something that holds people back, as well as poor infrastructure. So does an electric bike, which makes it easier to pedal over that long distance, make it more likely that people will take slightly longer bike rides? 
Electric bikes is an interesting one, and I think it it's, it certainly is changing. Um, certainly for I mean just personal experience, but the the number of of colleagues who are able to commute in that sort of 10, 15 kilometer radius, which let's be honest is a bit arduous on on, a, on an ordinary bike. And becomes much easier on, a, on an electric bike. So I think, again, in certain segments of the market, it will be that um, we're seeing them roll out very fast. And again, same phenomena, battery costs are falling, technology improving. So I mean, I think there's certainly plenty of governments that have, have looked at subsidizing electric bikes. Um, but I, you know, I think in the, we'll soon be in a situation where it's, it that just takes care of itself. And then we can all have as much fun as a barrel of monkeys, just like the Beach Boys on their little Honda, but without harming the environment. Subscribe to Climate Solutions so you don't miss any of the results of the climate survey or the explanations of our experts. You can also read the full results of the climate survey at eib.org. eib.org. In the next episode of Climate Solutions, you'll find out what young people think about climate change and how that compares with the views of old people. You might be in for a few surprises, by the way. So discover whether you agree with the 30,000 people in our survey on the next episode of Climate Solutions from the European Investment Bank, the EU Bank. <laughs>